Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings podcast, episode number 16, and we're on the uh, right episode this time, I hope. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, With me, as always is the composed Mitchell Davis. What's up? Hey, hey, how's it going? Good, good. Um, I, th- I think that adjective is pretty apt this week. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, you, you you were telling me before the show that you've had some trials this week, but, you know, you're still here, still composed. <laughs> Got to be. <laughs> Despite what, you know, comes at you, you, you really do. You, you can't, I mean... You know, sometimes you lose it, but you, you really got to stay composed, you know, despite despite different things that, that happened, you know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, this week we're going to uh, another uh, kind of overwhelming type show. You know, last week we were talking about the Beatles or the last two episodes we were talking about the Beatles and talking about how it's... Um, it's really a huge thing to talk about the Beatles and um, kind of overwhelming. And this week we have another overwhelming person to talk about, Ludwig van Beethoven. Um, but we're going to start with an album of Beck, his album Mutations uh, from 1998. And then it's all Beethoven, man, from there. Uh, yeah. We've got a Beethoven uh, piano trio CD a Beethoven string quartets, but done by orchestral strings CD. We have his Misa Solemnis, and then we're going to end with a couple of his piano concertos. So, um, yeah, man. Um, what do you think about the stuff overall for this week? Uh, Beck, I, you know, a lot more familiar with, but, but Beethoven, I mean, he was just one of those, figures in music that he's I mean just so much larger than life I mean you know to to first of all be able to accomplish a lot of what he did being deaf I mean you know it's 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 crazy I mean you know you don't realize how how amazingly talented he was you know until you really look close at at, at what he had to deal with and you know not only in his own with his physical health and like I said, his deafness, but his personal life and different issues he had to deal with, you know, and his family and yeah, uh, his brother and everything. I mean, there's a, I mean, a lot going on with, with him that just, just an amazing, amazing individual Beethoven. Yeah. Yeah. And really just, um, very tumultuous life Yeah, that he, that he led. Um, and he, he overcame, you know, s- just massive obstacles. We, we, we can talk about all that stuff um, when we get to him. Um, but let's go ahead and start with Beck. And uh, I think just about everybody's introduction to Beck was Loser. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that was a, a huge hit off of his, you know, first track off of his first album. And uh, this is, uh, I don't know what, or where this album falls in his, um, in his albums. I don't know, like what number album this is. I I, I want to say, well, as far as the number, I'm not sure. That it, I mean, according to the book, I think it comes after Odelay, 
or, or Lele, however you want to say that, but he um, he makes it like this is not a follow up album to totally. It's 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 one of those things where Beck is 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 the type of person he'll write a song and he'll just sit on it and and let it marinate for for years sometimes, and then you know here and there he'll he'll record and and then just let it sit on the shelf so. Like I said, I, I'm not really sure myself. You know, he he may have recorded some of this stuff, you know, ahead of the previous album and just had never released it. And um, it, it's hard to tell, but it's it's definitely different from from the previous record, where you know it it it's it's more definitely instrumentation where there's an actual band and 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 not like sampled tracks as much. You know, I mean, you you hear some odd little noises here and there, but it, it's more the the musician side, I would say, of, of, of Beck Hansen. So. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, on Odelay, that was another big record. I mean, that record had, didn't that record have like two turntables and a microphone? Wasn't that that record? Yeah. Where It's At. Yeah, that, that song where it's was at, on there. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, New Pollution. Uh, yeah, a bunch of big hits. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah, th- this, it, yeah, I mean, I think he's right. I think uh, it's almost like he he purposefully attempted not to have a follow-up to that. Mm-hmm. You know, just do something a little more, I don't know, personal, a little more um, something that wasn't geared toward this massive hit-making machine. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and I, you're you're right. I, I think Beck is one of those guys that he he definitely doesn't want to get pigeonholed, which could happen with him very yeah. easily. Um, and obviously, he he likes a variety of music, as you can tell from what he's put out, and um, you know his his influences or whatever. I mean, uh, blues to country to you know. Latin music, tropical music, if you will. Um, he he likes a, a, a large variety of stuff, which you know I'm, I can dig that too. You know I'm I'm the same way. Yeah. And I I guess this is just his way of saying you know I I don't want to ever get bored with my own stuff. You know, let alone have my fans do that. So you know I think this is just his attempt to to try to stay, you know, away from from the same old thing, which. You know he could do that very easily and 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 sell records and but you know rather than than try to do that you know just just try to you know keep people guessing you know about what he's yeah. gonna do yeah he seems like one of these kind of people that has a tendency to react against his own success sometimes oh yeah oh yeah uh yeah. i remember that i heard a story that um you know after that first album came out and loser was such a huge hit and uh, what happens always you know in those situations when you have a massive hit is that you have all these people showing up to your shows that want to hear the hit it, you know what i mean yeah. and so what he would do what he started doing was at the beginning of the show at the very start he would just walk on stage with a boom box and set it in front of a microphone and hit play and play loser and walk off stage and play loser on the boom box for everybody yeah. and then come back out and do the show yeah i've, I've heard I've, I've heard that story too i heard that when he was here in houston uh from a, a guy that we used to work with I, I heard that he he did that here 
And I was like, man, that is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is awesome. It is awesome. Um, because you know, it's a, it's a, it's a statement to the crowd, you know, it's like, come yeah. here to hear my music. You know, if you're, if you're just here to hear the hit, here it is, you can listen to it and leave, you know, basically. Exactly. exactly. And then that's, that's so many people will, will complain about, well, they didn't play this song, that song, or, or it didn't sound the way it did on the, on the record. Yeah. Right. You know, that's something that I, I know when I was younger, I, I kind of was more into, and then, you know, as, Certain musicians, you know, got to a point where, let's say, for instance, like Prince, where they would tour very selectively, and you you may not see them come to the city where you are, you know, for whatever reason. I'd gotten to a point where I was like, you know what? I don't care if they come on stage and play Happy Birthday. I just want to see them, you know. Yeah, yeah. If they're that good, it really won't matter what song they play or how they play it, you know, and, and Beck is like that too. You know, Beck could come out where it's just him and an acoustic guitar and a microphone and I'd be fine with that, you know, or yeah. he could come out with a whole, you know, Brian Wilson-esque type band like it with his, his smile thing and, and have all kinds of stuff going on stage and cause he could do that too, you know, and I, I'd be fine with that. You know, he's just one of those guys that, I'm just totally interested in in his perspective, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've I've heard that complaint um, or the complaint before several times in the past, where somebody went to see somebody and they complained that you know they played such and such song, but you know they didn't play it like it was on the album. Like you know that was a complaint. Yeah. And I just I never understood that complaint. You know, I mean, these people are musicians; they're artists. And uh, I, I don't understand the point of doing something exactly verbatim as it is on the album because, mm -hmm. you know, if that's what you want to hear, just stay you know, home. Yeah, stay home <laughs> and listen to the album. I, I, I don't, yeah. I never got that complaint. But um, anyway, we're going to start with, uh, oh, which one do you want to start with? Um, let's start with um, Tropicalia. Okay. Um, which is ironically, you know, I, I was not as familiar with, with this album uh, as, as much as I was some of his other albums. I heard uh, another artist do this song, a cover of this song, which I, I didn't even know Beck had written this song. Um, a lady named uh, Eliana Elias. I think that's how you pronounce her name. She, she played for a long time with, with Bill Evans. Great. Portuguese piano player, singer, uh, Brazilian type music, and and her version I I heard before I heard this one, and and you know listened to it, I was like, hey, I had no idea, you know, and and he in in his own mind was was trying to think, you know, I I really am not a person who does a lot of Brazilian style music. Mm -hmm. but this is like his take on that, where if he would were to do a song like that, you know, how it would sound, you know, and, and, and the, the music on this, he doesn't really play any instruments, but he, he obviously sings. And, um, you know, it's, it's just a great kind of departure from, you know, what he normally does, but still, you know, it, it has his DNA, you know, definitely in the lyrical content where you, you look at what he's singing about. 
And, um, you know, I, I, I was a little surprised when I, when I first, you know, heard it thinking, you know, I didn't know he wrote this song, <laughs> you know, but right, uh, right. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Tropicalia, I mean, it's, it, it, in one sense, it's kind of typical in the bent in the Beck um, sense because it's uh, some kind of, let's say, roots music that he's taken and sort of twisted, you know. So it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of recognizable, but it's like seen from a different point of view or something. Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, put through that lens of Beck. So yeah. Yeah. So you want to just check it out? Yeah, let's listen to it. Uh uh this is a uh, Beck with Tropicalia. When they beat upon a broken guitar and all the streets, the reek of tropical charms, the embassies. Lying hideous shots where tourists snore and decay When they dance in a reptile blaze You wear a mask, an equatorial haze Into the past, a colonial maze Where there's no more confetti to throw You wouldn't know what to say to yourself Love is a poverty you couldn't sell Misery waits in big hotels You're out of luck, you're singing funeral songs To the studs, the anabolic and bronze They seem to strut, and the millennial fogs Till they fall down in the flame You wouldn't know what to say to yourself Love is a poverty you couldn't sell Misery waits in big hotels To be loved with You've had your fun under an air-conditioned sun It's burned into your eyes Leaves you plain and left behind I see them rise and fall Into the jaws of a past and then love You wouldn't know what to say to yourself Love is a poverty you couldn't sell Misery waits and break hotels Beck with uh, Tropicalia, and uh, the the next one uh, we're gonna hear. Um, what is the next song we're gonna hear? <laughs> I forgot. Uh, canceled uh, check. Canceled check. There we go. I'm sorry. I, I my mind went somewhere else. Just a second. <laughs> um, again, just you know, another example of you know Beck's kind of you know unusual perspective on things where. You know, he he seems to be uh, focused on someone who who has a you know a variety of issues, uh, and uh, and I guess one of those main one of the main things in this song that you you hear uh, it's almost like a like a kind of bluesy country sound where he's he's singing about a person that is not very dependable and. Uh, He's just about to give up on them, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, just, you know, time after time, after time, after time, this person is just kind of, you know, 
kicked every opportunity down the street like a tin can, I guess. Um, <laughs> right. And uh, and everybody knows somebody like that, you know. Um, yeah, basically. yeah. Basically. <laughs> right, right. And this is this song is obviously heavily country influenced, um, and it's got a bizarre ending. Um, you, you know, the the very very end. It's sort of like it devolves into this like electronic sounds yeah, yeah. I, I don't yeah, I, <laughs> I, I kind of visualize like like gibby haynes from butthole surfers in the in the studio going you know hey i i, I got an idea you know <laughs> and right and all of a sudden he takes over the mixing board you know and all these weird crazy sounds come out and and that's one of the things about beck that you love is that you know he he can be very rootsy and 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 eclectic you know all in the same you know song so to speak where it it, it's not it's not unnatural for him you know right um right it's 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 just one of those things that that it's just his style and and that's one of the things i i like about him a lot is just you you know that he he likes a lot of old stuff but he likes a lot of new stuff he likes a lot of stuff that's kind of you know hokey and corny say like you know uh john denver or Ann Murray, and then uh-huh. he can just totally go Tangerine Dream on you. You know that that's that's Beck. I mean, he and he he obviously likes a lot of hip hop music and rap music too. And um, yeah, he's just one of those guys that when he when he puts out a record, I I usually always give it a, a, an opportunity. You know, I, I've liked some of his records a lot more than others, um, and I'm good with that too. You know, because. He's just one of those things. I'm I'm always excited to hear what he has to do or say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He seems like the kind of person that would, for instance, like a real kind of audiophile person that a person that would really like this book that we're talking about. Yeah, you know, going through all these recordings, and he has this you know amazing ability to uh, take all that influence, you know, from across any genre really, and then just sort of throw it in his. Beck blender <laughs> you, a good way to put it. you know and then pour it out and, and have a great you know great drink <laughs> you know um yeah. that, that's just just a mix of all this stuff you know but it all it all works you know and yeah it, but it all has its own personal spin on it so yeah um uh yeah you want to um just check this one out yeah let's let's listen to this one uh this is uh cancel check by beck your blessings and do the things that you should oh the has-beens that never had it so good stormy weather the kids are making a racket in the wilderness the wild lives are so mild and I get caught up in the moonlight Reaching out for a rotten egg I don't want to beg It's crystal clear your time is nearly gone I 
get caught up in the moonlight Reaching out for a rotten egg I don't wanna beg It's crystal clear your time And that was Cancel Check uh, by Beck. And uh, now I think we are going into the Beethoven. Yeah, man. The uh, the I think there are six albums of Beethoven in this book. And we're going to be covering the first four on this show. Um, and like the Beatles last time, you know, this is a, just a massive subject to try to cover. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, like, what do you talk about? What don't you talk about? And how deeply, you know, do you get into it and all that kind of stuff? So, um, you know, we're going to try to keep it concise and uh, like we did with the, the Beatles. And we're going to start with this recording of his Archduke Trio, Kreutzer Sonata, and also uh, variations on a theme of Mozart from the Magic Flute. And this is, a, I guess, would fall under the category of historical recording. It's a, cor- a recording that was made between 1927 and 1929 uh, by three very famous, you know, uh, classical musicians of the early 20th century, uh, Jacques Thibault, Pablo Casals, and Alfred Cortot. And, uh, you know, the, I have to talk about this because... Um, <laughs> I have some issue with some of his choice of recordings mm-hmm. <laughs> that he put in the book. Uh, you know, this is a this is a great performance by uh, Thibaut Casals and, and Corteau. Um, I'm not sure I would have used this recording as a kind of introduction because you know when you when you rec- when you recommend a historical recording like this it's usually to someone who's already familiar already a connoisseur and can really go back and hear this you know cuz the recording is it's old you know it's okay. it's, it's the recording quality is is um thin and and uh you know it does it just doesn't have the presence and the power of uh, what you would hear in a modern recording or what you would hear live. Um, okay. So uh, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, it's a great performance. It's a sort of a great document on how these guys would perform this music, you know, during this time and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, I would say if you're interested in this, you know, go seek a more modern recording to really get, you know, the power of this piece because you just can't really get it from this recording. Um, yeah. I, I, ironically, as you, as you bring that up, something I was thinking about uh, going over a lot of his stuff is uh, I remember all the recordings you would see, like when we, we worked in retail music that would say classical music for people who hate classical music. <laughs> right. um, and uh, you know, it, it was like a good way to kind of cut your teeth on classical music. If you felt like you were, you were challenged in that sense. So you're basically saying that, that this is not one of those to to start people off if they want to be, you know, 
uh, enlightened on Beethoven, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think just, uh, you know, to our modern ears, we're so used to modern recordings and modern produced recordings that are just so full of uh, presence and power and, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then we hear a recording like this, it just sounds so old and tinny and, and uh, you know, it, it, it lacks that presence. And I, uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, a recording like this just adds to that stigma of, uh, you know, this is music that's old and, and, you know, it doesn't have any relevance today and, and you know what I mean? And, and you can't yeah. really hear. And I'm pretty sure that if Beethoven heard this recording, regardless of the of the performance, if he heard the recording, you know, how it sounds, I'm pretty sure Beethoven himself wouldn't wouldn't be that into it. Because Beethoven, obviously, if you listen to any of his music, was into just huge, massive sound, you know, hmm. reverberated, yeah. you know, big, big sound. And um that's how he wanted his pieces to sound. So anyway, I don't know. I, I'm not, um, I don't want to belabor the point, but uh, I just wanted to bring that up. But uh, this piece, uh, Piano Trio, I, I think we're going to start with just the beginning of his uh, Piano Trio in B-flat major, Opus 97, his Archduke Trio. And uh, it's referred to uh, as the Archduke Trio because it was dedicated to Archduke Rudolf of Austria, who was uh, one of his students. So kind of one of his patrons, one of his students. That's how Beethoven made a living in Vienna, um, you know, in the early 19th century, is he had a bunch of rich, aristocratic friends, basically. And he would, you know, write pieces for them, dedicate pieces for them, teach them, teach their children or their, you know, relations and all this stuff. And... These people essentially, you know, supported Beethoven and paid him. That's yeah. how Beethoven um, made a living. Uh, and uh, this was written in his middle period. So Beethoven's music is sort of uh, separated into his early period, middle period, and late period. <clears throat> and during the middle period, he wrote probably his most recognizable stuff, like uh, the third symphony and the fifth symphony and, uh, you know, this, this kind of stuff, a lot of the piano sonatas that are very recognizable moonlight sonata and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so this was completed in March, uh, 1811. The first performance of this piece was given in April of 1814, um, by Beethoven himself on the piano, along with a violinist and a cellist. And, uh, this is actually Beethoven's last public performance as a pianist his his deafness was getting so bad that um one observer I have a quote here from one person who actually saw the performance and uh, he says uh, uh, in forte passages the poor deaf man pounded on the keys until the strings jangled and in the quiet passages he played so softly that whole groups of notes were omitted Wow. <laughs> so, you know, this was, this was his last, this represented his last public performance because he just, he got to the point where he just couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't hear. And, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. But I don't, did you have any thoughts on this piece? Or Well, the, 
the one thing that you brought up was the, the dedications. I, I was noticed that throughout most of his pieces that I read about, and I, I, I kind of figured, you know, what you were saying about the, you know, it, it was definitely about who you knew. You know, I mean, he was very talented, but he knew a lot of people who, who had a lot of influence and, you know, you had to get paid. And, um, you know, I I kept wondering about, the you know, dedicated to this person and dedicated to that person. I was like, you know, was he just that affectionate? And was, no, it's just, <laughs> he was just trying to, you know, keep things going. And yeah. also, too, the, the issue of him being deaf and some of this I listened to where some of the piano playing is so very subtle, oh, you yeah. know, and and I wondered how much it affected his, his his compositions to where, you know, someone with with hearing, you know, would be, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a right analogy. Someone with hearing uh, that was much better may have been you know, different in the way they would have put this together. I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of this, he had to go on not by what he heard, but by what he knew, you know, almost like being in a oh, room yeah. where where the lights are off in that room, but you know where everything in that room is. And, and, and how long did he, how long did he have to do that? You know, I mean, obviously his, his hearing left him, you know, I guess in his 20s, basically, you know, and he went well beyond those years composing. I mean, it's almost like um, anybody who reads, I guess, comics. Um, it's almost like Daredevil, <laughs> you know. Yeah, hey, that's he, a good analogy. <laughs> he's blind, but he was better suited to to do what he was doing a lot of the times in the dark, you know, because he just, he had so much better vision than anyone else in the dark, I, I guess, you know, is, is what I'm trying to yeah. say. Um, and I mean, that was, was that an advantage for Beethoven? You could figure if he's deaf, that's, that's, there's no way that could be an advantage, but if you're Beethoven and you're deaf and you have the skill that he has, you know, to, to hear and see things beyond your ears. I mean, I wonder how much that may have, you know, eventually kind of, helped him in in the fact that it was sort of a disability i i know that's kind of like a weird analogy you know throwing daredevil in there but dude i um, love that the the yeah. <laughs> beethoven's um, the daredevil of music that's awesome <laughs> i love that <laughs> um yeah uh you know his deafness definitely uh i mean it had a massively profound effect on beethoven's life and on his music i mean if he would have never have gone deaf, you know, un, no doubt Beethoven's output would have been drastically changed. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, his, his, just his whole outlook on life was changed. You know, there's a famous letter that he wrote. Oh, I, I can't remember how old he was. Maybe, um, mid thirties or maybe late thirties. I'd have to look it up. I can't remember. But anyway, this, this letter became known famously as the Highland Highland Testament. And basically what it was is he had retreated to the country basically um, 
in a final attempt to try to cure his deafness, you know, with all these doctors. And, and really, if you read about it, man, it is harsh. These doctors, you know, they had no idea what was wrong with him and they had no idea how to cure him. And so they all tried this crazy, crazy shit on him. Some of it was, you know, really painful. Some of it probably, uh, exacerbated the, the, you know, the condition. And, um, he finally, you know, came to grips with he wasn't going to be healed. He was going to be deaf. You know, his hearing loss wasn't going to get any better. And so he had gone to the country to this little college cottage uh, in a town called Heilingenstadt. And he had gone there to commit suicide. And um, what he had done is he he started writing his suicide letter and which you can go online and read, you know, on Wikipedia or whatever. And uh, it starts kind of as a, you know, as a suicide note. And through it, through writing this note, he sort of comes to the conclusion that he doesn't want to die. He wants to live because even though he has to live with this terrible curse, he, he has to live for his art. That's, I mean, that's what he says. I have to live for my art. You know, there's so much more that I have to say and all this stuff. And I have to, I have to bear the hardships because, you know, I can't leave the world or whatever, you know, but essentially what he says. And so that really just informed the rest of his life. And, uh, yeah, it's a, anyway, it's a, it's a huge thing to talk about, but, um, let's, let's check this out (laughs) before we talk anymore. This is, um, the first movement uh, where I'm just going to play, but you know, the, the very first part of uh, Beethoven's piano trio in B flat major opus 97, his archduke trio.
And we just heard Beethoven's Archduke Piano Trio. And we're going to move on to a different piece from this uh, same CD. Uh, His Seven Variations from Mozart's Magic Flute for Cello and Piano. And this was something that was really typical of composers um, of the time. Uh, You know, since really since the time of Mozart and Haydn and really all the way through the 19th century and even into the 20th century, composers would take themes, you know, melodies, whatever, from some other composer and then write a bunch of variations on that theme. So in this piece, uh, Beethoven takes this famous tune from Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute, and then he wrote he writes these series of variations for uh, piano and cello, and uh, I think you know usually these variations, especially if the theme is in like in a major mode, there's going to be one that's like cast in minor mode, and and you know they could take the melody and sort of um, change the feel. They could take it and change the time they, they they just change all these things and change the accompaniment change the key blah 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 you know write a bunch of variations yeah. um yeah 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 any thoughts on this one well something is real simple i i thought about is um this may have been in in a modern setting or a contemporary setting uh beethoven's take on on the remix so to speak, exactly, um, dude. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, <laughs> that's the first exactly. thing that came to my mind. Yeah, you know, it's just that you know somebody can put out a song. It's 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 a great song. It's a hit, you know. And then somebody else will come along. And is like, man, you know what? I was thinking about a a different way to present this song, and here's my version of it. And then the remix comes out, and it's a bigger hit, uh, so to speak, you know, or, or as big a hit as the original, you know. And uh, that that's the first thing that came to my mind is you know not necessarily a cover of of, of what Mozart did, but a remix. And uh, you know, I mean, it's some people may say no, it's not really the same thing, but I, I kind of think it is. You know, I agree with you. I think it is the same thing. I mean, this this concept of remix, the modern concept of remix, or even sampling. I mean, this is not a new concept in music. I mean, this goes all the way back to. Uh, the medieval period, really, when when composers were taking uh, the Gregorian chant and then basing whole pieces off of that already existing Gregorian chant lines. I mean, it goes all the way back, you know, there, you know, more than a thousand years. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pe- people will will tend to gravitate towards things they're already familiar with, you know, and to give them just a, a spin on something that they're familiar with. I mean, that, that has not changed at all, obviously. And, um, you know, I, it may have just been a, a, a sort of like a, an attempt to just kind of keep things flowing or, or at the same time, uh, you know, just his sort of reverence to, to what Mozart did. But, but either way, you know, again, like I said, it's, you know, it, it hasn't changed. I mean, you know, people think of, of, of Sean Combs is, you know, the first guy to ever really come and remix records. Apparently not, you know? <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think this excerpt I'm going to play, I'm going to start with the minor, var- the variation that goes into the minor mode. And then, uh, again, goes, goes into the, another variation. So I think hopefully we'll hear 
a bit from a couple different variations. So here is an excerpt from uh, Beethoven's Seven Variations from Mozart's Magic Flute for Cello and Piano. just heard Beethoven's variations on Mozart's magic flute and we're going to move on to our next album in our uh, Beethoven opus Uh, this album uh, from the Vienna Philharmonica conducted by Leonard Bernstein string quartets uh, his string quartets a couple of his late string quartets opus 131 and 135 but arranged for orchestral string section so um a couple things about about this first. For one, I could not find this album. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't believe how difficult. You know, I did find the album itself on Amazon, um, but only available as, you know, as a physical product, as ordering it as a CD or vinyl even. Wow. Um, in, in from like a bunch of uh, third-party retailers and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just don't have time, don't have the time to order that and wait for it to get here. Uh, and uh, I found one instance of this album on YouTube. And um, so that's what I'm going to use. And I apologize if the uh, audio quality is not as good as it usually is. Um, but in this situation, I just we just don't have a choice here. And this, you know, this might happen again because there are so many albums in this book and some of them are are kind of obscure and you know not widely available so you know we do what we yeah. can we do what we can I, I, um, I, and i know that i know this is coming to the day that we we can't find anything yeah i know it's you coming. know and, it, I know and it's then coming. all we have all we have to do is talk 
You know, I, I know that's coming too. Whereas I don't even I don't even try to think about it too much. It's just one of those <laughs> things like when it happens, it happens. You know, so yeah, whatever. yeah. So yeah, so at least we have this um, to play. So we're gonna play a couple excerpts for you from the same movement. So this album we're talking about is this string quartet's album released in 1979. And uh, it was a project of Leonard Bernstein, the the great 20th century composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein, um, who probably is uh, in the popular culture most famous for uh, West Side Story. Um, but, you know, it's one of the, the most major figures in classical music in the 20th century, really. And uh, he apparently heard one of these string quartets done in this way when he was a student. And it had a real profound effect on him, and, and he obviously wanted to do that again. Um, and, you know, the first time when I saw this in the book, I kind of got all, I don't know, my classical conservative side came out and, you know, said, oh, you know, what are these are arranged for orchestra you know these beethoven wrote these for string quartet and they should be heard on string quartet <laughs> <laughs> um but i heard this at least this movement you know on on youtube and uh oh it works so beautifully i mean it, it, it's so uh powerful you know hearing a, an entire orchestral string section play this movement the movement i'm talking about is uh the adagio the first movement from uh, his string quartet opus 131 and uh what did you think about this just like you said just really beautiful uh you know he he obviously when like you said when he first heard this um you know he must have just tucked it away and said you know i've got a really good idea I, i can't do this right away but eventually i want this to happen and and for someone to to have that ability to to kind of already have it figured out in his head to put it out on a grand scale like he did is is, is amazing, you know. And um, you know, I I think like you said, you know, it, it could have been one of those things where you know it initially it wasn't supposed to really be presented this way, but you know he he still just had a vision to you know, take this in a, a whole different direction and, and a wonderful direction. And um, like you said, it, it definitely works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, this is an example of one of Beethoven's late works uh, when Beethoven was completely deaf. So uh, the deal with Beethoven's deafness, you know, it wasn't like immediate. It wasn't like he could hear and then one day he woke up and he was deaf. It was a progressive disease, um, so during, you know, a lot of, let's say Beethoven's middle period or something, uh, his hearing was getting progressively worse and worse, but he did have some hearing, but by the time of these pieces, he was completely deaf. So this, this represents the time when Beethoven was totally deaf and the pieces got, you know, kind of introspective and they, they got even more complex, I would say, because um, in a sense, Beethoven was kind of freed from, you know, freed from conventional hearing to where he just was able to live completely in his mind. 
mm-hmm. you know? And um, uh, so this, you know, this lent his late music um, a complexity and, and a depth of complexity really never seen before in music. And people at this time, during this time that heard this music, a lot of them were completely confounded by it. They they thought that Beethoven had lost his mind, literally. They couldn't make sense of the music. They thought this music sounded like nonsense. Um, they thought it sounded like, you know, random noise. I mean, it, it just they just didn't understand it a lot of the time. Um, and, you know, in one, I have to say, this movement um, uh, was dedicated you know has another dedication to this baron baron joseph von studerheim but apparently he dedicated to this guy in gratitude because this guy had gotten his nephew carl into the military after his nephew attempted suicide and in uh 1826 and um obviously didn't succeed in killing himself but that's a whole other story you know when beethoven was older and and got custody of his nephew Carl and uh, tried to make this this young man into a virtuoso pianist and virtuoso musician and which which this guy wasn't you know he was not a virtuoso yeah. musician and Beethoven literally drove this kid to the point of suicide I mean um, you know it's a it's a sad story. Um, but anyway, you know, this, this movement, this fugue, this, this music is full of this kind of feeling, you know, maybe the, the, the feeling of regret and sorrow and, and, uh, it was written, you know, right after this happened. Um, Mm. and, uh, so the first movement we're going to hear is a fugue. So at this point, you know, we've heard a lot of fugues on the show from, from Bach and other composers and, uh, the fugue has something in it that Beethoven loved to do, which was basically be subversive. And what I mean by that is um, an audience during this time going to hear music really knew the musical conventions of the time. So if they were sitting down and they were going to hear a piano sonata, for instance, they would know how piano sonata was supposed to work, right? So if a piano sonata was in C major, they would expect harmonically the piano sonata to do all these different things right so it come up to a cadence and they would expect it to do this certain thing beethoven loved to play with those expectations so he would set up these expectations oh you know he would set this thing up to do a certain thing then he would punch the audience in the face with something completely unexpected that's what he loved to do in his music and this is no different so this uh Fugue subject, well, I'll just, I can play it on guitar. So can you hear this? Yeah. So this fugue subject just sort of sounds like this. Uh, let's see. Uh, it sounds like that. So he hits you in the face like uh, this note. That note right there. And he he puts this marking on it to where the uh, the players would just really lay into that note. I mean, if another composer, a less inventive composer, would probably done something like this. 
so, something like that. But Beethoven <clears throat> gives us that flat six um, with the fourth note. Yeah. Um, and he just loved to do stuff like that. Um, that's what Beethoven did all the time. So, um, oops. Yeah, so, sorry, I just lost my uh, headphones. <laughs> oh, that's okay. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, anything else before we play this? Well, leading from, from what you were just talking about and, and how he would kind of be subversive, I think it, it also, you know, is worth mentioning that, that Beethoven, like a lot of people nowadays in, in music, you know, had to kind of deal with censorship um, where people thought, you know, Hey, what are you doing? You can't do this, you know. And he he may have been one of the first major players in music to have to deal with with that kind of thing, you know. I mean, obviously, you know, Mozart too, but um, he he also had his fair share of 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 being, you know, I guess censored, so to speak. Um, yeah, and and yeah. and having his music criticized by you know a variety of of dignitaries and whatnot and and i i'm sure that 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 could be very 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 stressful um where he's just wanting to present his music as is and then be kind of left alone you know not only having to deal with whatever else he was dealing with you know obviously we went into some of his other problems but but anyway um definitely on on his own terms would he write his own music and if if people in the audience, you know, like you said, you know, felt punched in the face, so to speak, you know, <laughs> so be it, you know, but, um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So let's check this out. Um, the first excerpt from his string quartet, Opus 131. This is the Adagio.
And we just heard the opening adagio from Beethoven's String Quartet 131, played by the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra Strings. Um, And uh, yeah, we're going to just play another second excerpt from a little bit later in the piece. Um, Haven't really decided yet where exactly, but um, just so we can hear, you know, the piece a little bit further along, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, And this is the first time that we've done this on the show. Like I said, it's it's kind of out of necessity, but um, I don't know. I think it'll be kind of interesting, too, to hear... Um, two excerpts from the same movement and that you know Beethoven was so famous one of the things that uh, Beethoven did really well almost better than anybody else was you know develop you know develop themes and uh, in his music and that's one thing that you listen to in Beethoven's music you know you listen to the journey that his themes take you know through the music and how he develops and uses these themes um, which is something that I have to say uh, really doesn't exist in popular music. I mean, there are some forms of development. Uh, mostly it's um, uh, kind of layering. So you'll hear a lot of layering in pop music. You know, you'll hear s- stuff going on and then they'll start to add layers of stuff on top of it as mm-hmm. a way to develop. But you don't really have this taking of these themes and developing it in the way that Beethoven did or a lot of classical composers did and um, so you know you can hear that I mean one one of the best examples I'm not sure if we'll hear this or not but one of the best examples of that is you know his fifth symphony you know it opens up da 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 right mm-hmm. you know it's a famous opening and that's all that symphony or that that movement that's all it is it's da 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 that's it that is all that movement is and you know cuz it's uh i mean the whole thing is just and so it's amazing that someone can take something that simple and and write this you know really profound music from just that little cell of music yeah yeah so uh yeah um Let's just check it out. <laughs> I he, guess, he, unless there's something he, you want to say. He, he, <laughs> I, I think the, another, going back to the whole, you know, death versus, you know, Daredevil thing, he, he, he could see color in music, if, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, it makes total sense. Rather than just hear what, what you're hearing from the music or even feel vibrations, you, you, you always talk talk about or hear people talk about where when people lose their hearing, you know, they, they can still feel vibrations. But I think, you know, with with the music, even in that he, he could he could see color, he could feel color or even flavor like taste, you know, as, as strange as that may sound, you know, he, he just he had a keen sense beyond what his ears would let him hear, which obviously at this point they wouldn't let him hear anything. Um, And he must have, you know, how, how else? I mean, unless he's got somebody else there with him writing for him, which I I seriously doubt, you know, it's almost like he could, he could, he had, he had color that, that would come out at him from music, you know, and, and almost would, would paint with that color, you know? So anyway, that's, 
Yeah, exactly. No, that's a real phenomenon. Um, I, I think it's interesting you brought it up. Uh, that phenomenon is called synesthesia. Yeah, um, exactly. It's something uh, actually that that I experience as well. Um, I have oh, really. Yeah, I have um, uh, sound to color synesthesia and also color to sound synesthesia. <laughs> so oh. you know, when I when I hear a sound, I see a color, and, and when I see a color, I hear a sound. And n- not everybody has it both ways, but um, but Beethoven, you know it's quite possible that he was uh, a synesthete also and um, you know, saw color associated with music. There's been many composers and artists uh, throughout history that have been, you know, synesthetes and yeah. So I I don't doubt that it is a real phenomenon and I don't doubt that uh, Beethoven experienced it. Yeah. And we just heard Beethoven String Quartet, Opus 131. And we're going to move on to the next recording, his Misa Solemnis, uh, done by the new Philharmonia Chorus and Orchestra, Otto Klemperer conducting. This was released in 1966, reissued in 2001. And uh, this is, uh, you know, kind of like the Mass in B minor of Bach that we did. Uh, you know, earlier during the Bach show, this is a giant mass for huge chorus, huge orchestra, um, for vocal soloists, you know, instrumental soloists. It's just a massive work. And uh, we're going to be playing uh, parts from the Credo and from the Gloria of this mass. And of course, you know, this is a mass uh done in the catholic tradition you know so there's all there's all these different movements and uh 
the deal is that you know all the movements are the same and any mass that you're going to hear so there's going to be like a credo and a gloria and an agnus dei and all this stuff and they all have the same text right so it's the setting of this mass text um really mm. um but you know every composer of course has their own take on it their own spin on it um they tweak it and you know change it as much as they can you know to make it their own and uh, that's what beethoven did here so this is another late work this was written around the same time as his ninth symphony you know the famous ode to joy symphony and uh it's uh you know it's a really unusual piece for beethoven uh because it doesn't have this thematic development that he's so famous for um it, it's kind of like this almost like stream of consciousness piece that sort of follows the text and and the variation in each movement is just unbelievable you know um you know we're going to hear that in uh in the credo you know it just it goes from like uh, powerful and boisterous this huge choral sound um you know that you get throughout the ninth symphony um it you know has fast and powerful music it has fugal sections it has slow melodic tender music it has aggressive music you know sometimes all within the span of maybe like five minutes or something it just it just changes and yeah. uh yeah um what do you think of of this of the credo well, it's just a, a, a great example of, of his talent and his vision. Um, you know, it, it can, like you said, it can be so many things, you know, in, in just one movement or, or setting, if you will, where, you know, it can be just really just this grand scale, you know, sound. And then it can be, like you said, just really tender and really delicate. And, 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 and it seems like it's all just flowing from him so naturally you know which which in itself is is amazing um the the mentality that he had to compose music and and the ability to do it you know and obviously all still not being able to hear it um just yeah. a, a just an awesome testament to to his legacy so to speak and um you know, I, I, I think I, I like the uh the issue too of the fact that you know he's like you said, he was dealing with so many things in his life, you know, and was and was still able to work, you know, and, and probably I'm sure his work was a was a benefit, you know, to help him cope with a lot of things that he was dealing with in his personal life. Uh-huh. So, you know, just like I said, just just an awesome uh individual uh and 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 these two pieces are, are both awesome that we kind of are focusing on uh, in, uh-huh. in particular yeah yeah and I, I think the excerpt i'm gonna play are is starting with this section for the solo singer so he has four solo singers a soprano and alto a tenor and a bass and this section that they all are singing almost like they're singing they should be singing by themselves so they're singing like their own personal different melodies but all at the same time and so they all have these really independent melodies but it all works together it's not a fugue it's not fugal but it's this you know 
this tapestry of lines, independent lines that work together along with this solo flute line. So you really have these five lines going on with kind of accompaniment, you know, from the orchestra and the choir. Um, man, just really beautifully put together. Uh, you know, it doesn't sound overwhelming. It just sounds completely natural. Uh, and then uh, it goes into this kind of more ominous place, you know, really ominous and, and minor modish on the word crucifixus, which, you know, means crucifixion, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he he sort of paints the words, you know, it takes this real ominous turn when when yeah, when the text comes up on this word crucifixus. Um, so, yeah, let's check that out. This is the credo from Beethoven's Misa Solemnis. just heard Misa Solemnis, the Credo of Beethoven, and we're going to move on to the Gloria movement from that piece. Um, and any thoughts on this movement, the Gloria? When when I was reading about it, they 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 talk about I guess the the the, the timing of, of the piece, which I guess is uh, is three quarter time, um, and, and how uh, it's it's almost encyclopedic. In its exploration of, of that style, uh, where so many people were, I guess I guess influenced afterwards by this, and and how you know pieces like this are today even, um, and uh, 
it, again, just just such a, a, a massive move in styles uh, from beginning to end. You know, just yeah. It, 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 I mean, Beethoven was like he, he's almost like the ocean. <laughs> you know, uh-huh, just uh-huh. just really big and and lots of stuff going on depending on where where you are in that ocean, so to speak. I I'm, that might be kind of like a silly analogy, but uh, no, I know what you're saying. He, yeah, he just had so much going on, you know, at, at times, and 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 was always, you know, apt to, you know, putting his stamp on whatever it is he wanted to do, whether it was very very heavy or very very subtle. Uh, you know, some some of his subtle stuff, it's it's like tiptoeing. It's so subtle, you know. And then some of his heavy stuff, I mean, it, it's like it's like an army of tanks hitting you, you know. Um, and 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 that's that's great. I mean, it's it, it you know, it's it's just really good mood music, I guess, if you will, you know. And and how moods shift. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, this uh, this part of the Gloria that I'm going to play um, is really this tr- super triumphant sounding music on the text. Um, it's a, it's a fugue too. It goes into this big fugue again, um, which Beethoven, you know, d- late in his life, you know, you'll find in his late works, you'll find fugues all over the place. He, he, he really dove into um, the, you know, the, fugue late in his life you know because i think he you know along with many other composers see fugue as really one of the pinnacles of composition uh and uh so it goes into this grand fugue and the text is like you know gloria and excelsis deo all this stuff like you know glory to god in the highest and all this is the kind of text that the choir is singing during this part so you Mm -hmm. know the music is like fireworks like the biggest fireworks show you know you've ever seen you know it's just you know showers of sparks just going off all over the place and that's what the music is like here um so let's check this out this is from the gloria from beethoven's misa solemnis
And we just heard the Gloria from Beethoven's Misa Solemnis. And we're going to move on to our final album of the day, an album of Beethoven's piano concertos, his five piano concertos, played by pianist Rudolf Serkin. Um, and the orchestra here is the Chorus and Symphony of the Bavarian Radio Symphony. Um, this was originally recorded in 1977, and it was re-released uh, in 2005. And uh, what I'm going to do with this, uh, you know, I, I, I have a kind of another gripe about Tom Moon's choice of albums <laughs> not about <laughs> not not about these particular albums i mean these albums are great but what we have here are um this album of piano concertos one through five and then the next cd that we're going to start with next week is piano concertos number four and five so we get two cds that both have the same pieces so this cd has obviously the fourth and fifth piano concertos and then next week we get a cd with the fourth and fifth piano concertos on them again and while I think it's cool, you know, that we get to hear two different CDs of piano concertos, um, what Tom Moon did not include was a CD of Beethoven's piano sonatas, which his his 32 piano sonatas took up his entire life, you know. So yeah. his, his, you know, a majority of his compositional output was put into these piano sonatas. And I mean, I guess I'm just pissed off that I don't get, you know, I want to talk Does about the piano sonatas and I don't yeah. get to. <laughs> Um, but, but anyway, um, so what I thought I would do, because since the second CD is of just the piano concertos four and five, which are, uh, late piano concertos, I thought this week we would start with piano concertos one and two. So we could hear an example of some early work, some early Beethoven. And then next week we get to hear, you know, how he handled the piano concerto later in his life. Um, so we're going to start with piano concerto number one, just the first movement, the allegro from piano concerto number one. This was uh, composed in 1797 and uh, when Beethoven was uh, about 27 years old. And um, yeah, it, it's just, you know, this is a, a t during a time in Beethoven's life when, you know, he's really not yet burdened with that hearing loss and he's sort of filled with this youthful exuberance and he's trying to establish himself not just as a composer but as a virtuoso pianist so he's mm. writing these pieces for himself it's almost like a vehicle that he can perform uh, you know around mm. uh, vienna and germany and whatever and show himself off as not just a composer but yeah. as a great pianist um yeah what did you think of this i i totally agree with you about what you said i mean when when someone comes up with i'm a classically trained whatever especially piano player this is probably something they would sit down and play um say okay like say like alicia keys who you know most people you know even though she says you know i'm a classically trained piano player they don't really hear her on that side very much but yeah if she were to show you hey this is what i can do this is probably something she would play yeah yeah um to show you this this is i have this skill and i think the same thing with beethoven you know this is just me showcasing my goods this is what i can do and it's it's not very easy to play you know obviously it's it's very intricate 
um, but very good, you know, even to someone who, I, I mean, I don't play piano, but when you hear it, I'll go back to the whole music for people who hate classical music or classical music for people who hate classical music. That's, that's <laughs> right, what I right, meant right. to say. <laughs> this is something that probably would come out, you know, and, and, and wouldn't be, you know, I guess, you know, hokey or corny. It's, it's very quality, quality piece. And, um, you know, that's, that's pretty much what, what I took from this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this music is interesting because it's early enough in Beethoven's career that he hasn't yet fully developed his own sound. So even though you can hear Beethoven in this music, you can also hear a lot of Mozart and Haydn in this music because, you know, that those were Beethoven's examples, you know, when he was coming up, um, he was a student of Haydn. Um, and so he, he really, you know, Haydn, Haydn's music had a big influence on Beethoven and also, uh, Mozart, you know, had a in, huge influence on Beethoven. Um, and, uh, you know, there's evidence that Beethoven met Mozart towards the end of Mozart's life and played for him, but, uh, you know, he, he would never studied with him or had any kind of, uh, you know, you know, prolonged contact with Mozart, but he, was hugely influenced by Mozart's music. So you can hear that in this, you know, this music has a, has a lightness to it. And, uh, it, you can hear it's sort of not yet burdened with all those heavy trials of life that Beethoven would endure, you know, in the coming yeah. years. Um, yeah. yeah. So let's check this out. Um, this opening movement from his piano concerto number one, Thank you. 
And we just heard Piano Concerto Number 1, and we're going to listen to uh, the third movement from the Piano Concerto Number 2. And what's kind of interesting about this is the Piano Concerto Number 2 was written 10 years before Piano Concerto Number 1. So the reason it's be called Piano... Uh, the reason it's called Piano Concerto Number no. Two is because apparently it was published after the first one. Um, so, in its published date, it came after the Concerto Number no. One. But basically, this was ten years earlier. Um, <coughs> so, excuse me. So this was written about 1787-88 um, when Beethoven was just about 18 years old. And um, this is, you know, just like I was saying with the other piece, but even more so, you know, so this is definitely, you know, he's a kid. He hasn't had any, um, you know, grown up problems or or certainly no health problems or any of that yet in his life. Mm -hmm. Um, He's he's really trying to establish himself here. You know, this is really where he's trying to prove to people that he can compose he can play piano and uh it's yeah it's just it's full of youthful exuberance is what all i can say you know unfettered by life yet you know yeah um yeah yeah what do you think of this uh one of the funny things that i I read beethoven apparently didn't think that this was one of his better works and and i mean that in itself to me, I'm like, okay, wow, you know, because to me, when I listen to it, I mean, it, it's just amazing. Again, it's it's just him basically kind of showing off his chops, you know, he, as as young as he was, his talent was extraordinary, you know, and yeah, yeah. to to be able to just, you know, well, you know, this is good, but it's not my best one. I mean, I'm like, are you kidding me? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it's, it's just a great testament, you know, to again to, to his talent and and to his vision and, and and a good example like you said of of how he was you know emotionally and maybe spiritually at that period you know before you know a lot of things that came up against him you know in the negative you know begin to influence his music it definitely has a a more jovial spirit than than some of his later stuff oh yeah you know? Yeah, definitely. So. Yeah, it could have been just a case of, you know, sometimes when when we look back on our own lives and stuff we did when we were 18 years old and think, oh, oh my God, what was I thinking? Yeah. You, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> it could be, yeah, it could be something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, so yeah, this is just a, a great portrait of the early Beethoven. And really, you know, it gives us a clue into maybe some directions his music might have taken had he never had to deal with the extremely difficult things he had to deal with over his life. You know, he would have had a good life, a a comfortable life, you know, one that wasn't burdened with going deaf and, and, and on and on and on, you know, his, his music might've stayed like this. We might not have gotten these like big profound things that he wrote later in his life. So yeah, I don't know. It's speculation. Who knows? But yeah, um, yeah. But uh, no, let's check this out. This uh, last track for this week, uh, the third movement from Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. Two. 
And we just heard Beethoven Piano Concerto Number Two, and that's going to do it for this week's podcast, episode number sixteen. If you'd like to send us an email, and please do send us an email, um, you can send that to one thousand recordings podcast at gmail.com. You can look at our website at 1000rp.blogspot.com. You can join us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 1000rp. And you can join us on Facebook um, where we post cool stuff and and interact with our fans. And um, we had another, a a new five-star review this week. Um. Should I read that? <laughs> you should. You, I, th- I definitely think you should read that. Yeah, I, I just brought it up. So um, this five-star review comes to us from Mike Mish. He says, if you're a fan of the 1000 Recordings book or just a fan of discovering new music in general, Tony and Mitch have put together a great podcast for you. They really help to highlight the reasons Tom Moon put some of these recordings in the book. And he says it can be unclear at times. (laughs) And they have a wealth of knowledge about the artist and music as a whole. Keep up the great work, guys. So that was nice. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. And as always, if you want to leave us a five-star review and a rating on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it. We'll read it on the show and it will help us uh, immensely in our visibility on iTunes and, you know, helping people find our podcast basically, uh, and discover it. So, uh, we would, we would appreciate that. Um, what do we got next week, Mitch besides, well, we got more Beethoven, right? De- definitely more Beethoven. Um, early jazz, uh, trumpet player. And I, I know I'm going to probably mispronounce his last name. Uh, big binder Becky. <laughs> I think it's biter Biderbeck. Okay, yeah. there we go. Thank you. Um, also, um, Harry Belafonte, uh, very prolific figure in himself. Uh, obviously, you know people know the Banana Boat song and uh, other songs from Harry Belafonte, but uh, big time in civil rights. Even even now, uh, Harry Belafonte is still very active uh, on into his, uh, you know latter years still very active in in politics and social issues and um i think one more artist uh peter bellamy yeah uh folk singer peter bellamy yeah i don't i don't uh, know for, peter bellamy at all so this will be i don't either yeah that'll right. be interesting right. to get into good yeah something something different next week uh hopefully for the two of us and everybody else yeah yeah awesome um well all right man do you have any parting words or is that it <laughs> uh no uh beethoven is is like like i said is the beatles is one thing and beethoven is a whole nother thing um <laughs> yeah and th- there's there's so much that 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 i still would love to talk about with him but you know there's there's no way you can cover all of all of beethoven and and just the short amount of time we have. I oh mean, yeah, I mean, for for example, you know, one of the albums we are going to talk about next week are Beethoven symphonies one through nine, all of his symphonies. So we have to yeah. pick two excerpts <laughs> from nine symphonies. I mean, we're talking about music that represents. We're, we're, I mean, I'm just I'm just guessing here. We're, I'm, we're talking about probably 15, 16 hours of music. Yeah. Yeah, and I know you, 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 you have your favorite stuff 
from that, and I, I know I definitely have mine. Yeah. But, but you know, it's again, it's, it's it's such a broad, broad spectrum. I mean, you know, uh, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see what we're doing. But um, yeah, so look forward to that next week. And uh, until then, we'll see everybody later. Bye bye, everybody. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>